Good morning, Hicks and Prez. This morning we continue our journey through the Epistle of Romans, the first chapter. We'll finish the first chapter today as we look at verses 22 through 32. So read with me in your Bible there at home or wherever you are, uh, if you will. We'll be reading. Let me back up and actually read verse 18 through 32 so we can get a, a gist of the entire passage. Hear God's word. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to a dishonorable passion for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of right unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, and though they know God's righteous degree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. God's word, let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the many blessings that you daily lavish upon us. We thank you for the joy and privilege that we have as your people uh, during these difficult and trying times to stay together even when we're apart, to be challenged by your word, to hear your word proclaimed and to worship you with our hearts virtually there in our living room, in our kitchen, in our bedroom, wherever uh, we may be. And Father, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us, that your Holy Spirit would enable my feeble tongue, to articulate your word in a way that challenges us, that encourages us, that transforms us to the people, to be the people that you've called us to be. And I pray this, O oh God, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 
Sermon titled this morning is God's Created Order. Approximately a year ago, I, along with a couple people from church, did a home improvement project where I replaced the stone tile flooring uh, in our kitchen and entryway and bathroom with 12 millimeter laminate flooring. It's the type of flooring that when it's installed, it's known as a floating floor. And to ensure that every row is as straight and even as possible, you need to begin in a quarter, corner, or with a perfect square as much as possible. Um, that way, by the time you get to the end of the room, if you're off at all, and most rooms are not perfect squares, so usually there's some discrepancy between one side of the room and the other, but that discrepancy is increased uh, if you don't start out with a square, such as a corner. Well, as believers, one thing that we see in God's Word is that there is a order to the universe. There is a square, if you will, there is a fundamental matrix around which all of creation and all of life revolves. There's a spiritual mysterious order that is woven into the very fabric of life. And it's this order that begins with God the Creator. And if we do not begin with God, the Creator, the Sovereign, the King, the Father, the Lord of life, the Lord of the universe, then ultimately all of life will be off kilter. Things will be unnatural, meaning they will not be consistent with the natural order as God intended. In this passage that we read, primarily verses 22 through 32, what we see is uh, that there are four major exchanges that take place. Three that are explicitly stated and one that is implied. There's an exchange of glory that we're going to look at in our first point. Uh, secondly, there is an exchange of truth. There's an exchange, thirdly, of nature, of what is natural. And then fourth and finally, there is an exchange of conscience. So to my first point, idolatry is an exchange of devotion, meaning that creation becomes the expected source of value. We see this clearly in verses 22 and 23, where mankind is rebuked for exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So man is looking to creation as the source of value, as the source of uh, devotion, as the source of purpose. Now, before we go on, let's define what we mean by creation. What is creation? Well, everything that you and I can think of, everything we see around us, the trees, the birds, the plants, including you and I, everything in this world, everything that we can conjure up, everything that we can imagine, every image that we can project onto the mind's eye belongs to the realm of creation. This includes the beauty of the natural world, as well as the depths of the world of thought and creativity. The list that is given here in our text of these creatures pertain mainly to uh, creatures in the ancient world that would have characterized some value or hidden power to those living back then. But we deceive ourselves if we think that this is an all-inclusive list. It is not. Now, this is not to say that there's not satisfaction in the created order. After all, God is the creator and all of us and everything else is creation. And 
uh, really those categories, if you will, are the only two categories that exist throughout the known universe. There is satisfaction in creation. However, creation cannot be the object of our devotion. It cannot be the source of our, of our value because we are part of it. We are not separate from it. We are made in God's image. We are made physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. And we are sensual, meaning that we understand and we interact and we perceive the world around us through our five senses. But there's also a sixth sense, if you will. This is the sense of the divine that is mentioned in verses 19 through 20, where it says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. To whom? To all mankind. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Now, you can wonder, well, to what extent can man discern God if we are born spiritually dead? After all, isn't that what we believe? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? That until the Holy Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead regenerates or resurrects our dead heart, that we are spiritually dead. Yes, that's true. So how then can the divine nature of the eternal Godhead be perceived, be discerned in nature? Well, spiritual death pertains to our desire, or lack thereof, to worship the one true God through Jesus Christ, his only Son. It does not mean that we cease to be spiritual beings capable of noting a divine presence in the world. Deep in the heart of every man, woman, and child, there's this awareness of this great mystery whom we call God the Creator. And idolatry begins when we demand from creation instead of Creator something that creation cannot give, a purpose for being, value that only can come from the Creator. So this idolatrous exchange of glory really stands in contrast to what is the apex of the Christian story, the apex of the Christian message, uh, which is the incarnation. Here, man seeks to ascribe to creation. In idolatry, man seeks to ascribe to creation the attributes that belong to God the Creator. But in the incarnation, God the Creator joins with creation to reveal the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father, as we see in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. So, idolatry begins as an exchange of devotion, looking to creation, of which we are a part, instead of to the Creator who made us for His own glory. Now, point of application here, I believe that this point is very applicable uh, today, it always has been, but uh, we live in a world where often we are told that uh, we have no responsibility to this natural world, at least if we're not told that explicitly, it is implied in how we live our lives and in perhaps how we see the world around us. But really there are two extremes in our contemporary society. On one side you have those who care strongly for environmental justice because they've elevated creation if not the natural world, then definitely their own comfort or the comfort of their children to a place of exalted privilege. And they are looking to creation, whether it's human action or human consciousness, to provide a certainty for the future. 
And then on the other hand, the other extreme, you have those who often profess faith in Christ or profess to be Christian, who consider mankind a third thing. If there's the creator in creation, then they perceive themselves as somehow not being part of either, but rather a third thing. They're neither creation nor creator. They see themselves as separate from the natural world. These people realize that heaven ultimately is their ultimate home, their goal, and sometimes they are tempted to even make an idol of heaven. They picture heaven as a place of disembodied spirits where we will forever bask in the beauty of golden streets and pearly gates of splendor. And so against these two extremes, we have the biblical perspective, which is a stark reminder that mankind is and always shall be, even in our glorified state, part of creation. Therefore, we shouldn't look to creation. We shouldn't look to the world around us for value. We shouldn't look to ourselves. We shouldn't look to uh, society for future security, nor should we consider ourselves absolved of the responsibility of ensuring that this world is taken care of and, and that the environment is preserved. But ultimately, we should look to God, understanding that all of creation, ourselves included, belongs to him. And so to look to creation for purpose and meaning, or to look to a future world for purpose and meaning, both exchanges the glory of the creator for that of creation. The natural order places mankind as a peer within the created universe, and God alone is the author and sustainer of all life. This leads me to my second point, which is that bad anthropology begins with bad theology. Now, those are two big words, and I'll just briefly define them. Anthropology is the study of man. It's the study of who we are. What is man's uh, nature? What is man's origin? What is man's purpose, if you will? That is uh, what is included in this big word, anthropology. It comes from two Greek words, anthropos, which is the Greek word for man, and logos, which is the Greek word for the study of. So, in essence, it is the study of man. And then, of course, theology, which we're more familiar with, is the study of God. So bad anthropology, a, a misunderstanding of who we are as individuals, as mankind, begins with incorrect or bad theology. In verses 24 through 25, we see the second casualty of idolatry. If the first casualty, if the origins of idolatry is an exchange of devotion, Instead of giving to the creator the devotion due to him, we look to creation, whether it's ourselves or, or some other aspect of creation for fulfillment and value. Instead of giving God glory, we glorify something else. Then the second casualty of idolatry is our understanding of self. Truth, who we are in relation to God, truth about humanity, and how we interact with each other and the world around us. We read in verses 24 through 25, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring God, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, 
and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. There's a lot of talk today, both within society at large, within universities, within schools, within homes, within churches, about the nature of man, about human identity, who we are and why. And if we are off on the first point, goes back to my analogy earlier that if we do not begin with a perfect square, if we do not begin with that focal point of our attention on the Creator, then ultimately we will be off on every other point as well. If we do not understand that God is the Creator, we are creation, He made us for His own glory, and we can only find our purpose and meaning in Him, then we will not understand who we are and who we were created to be. If we do not know who God is and worship him as such, then we will never truly know who we are. And on the other hand, if we are never more human than when we belong to God, when we worship him as creator, then when we are redeemed in Christ and our attention is redirected to him, then ultimately we are truly human, if you will. Now, you'll note in these verses that I just read that God is not active. What do I mean by that? Well, he's passive. God does not make mankind who we become. But he allows the natural outworking of our misplaced allegiance to shape how we see ourselves and others. We see that verse 24 says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. The result of this lust of a fallen man's heart is against the created order. It is unnatural. It is against God's purpose for man and for all of creation. It is not with the created order, but against it. And so once we redirect our attention away from God onto anything else in creation, then ultimately the natural outworking of that is to misunderstand who we are, both individually as well as collectively as humans. In other words, because of the fall, none of us, no one, are who we were created to be. And left to our own devices, we will either dishonor our bodies, which were made for God through self-indulgence, or dishonor our bodies through self-depredation. Now, I think that's a key point, so I want to I want to reiterate it, that because of the fall, because we have become oriented away from God, and that's what we mean when we talk about our, our depraved state, that we're born dead in sin. Again, as I said earlier, it's not that there's no sense of the divine or sense of the creator. We, we know that there's a God. His glory is displayed throughout creation. But we are born with our backs to God, an enemy of God. But yet it is part of who we are to worship. And so, if we do not worship God, we worship something. And ultimately, what we see here in verses 24 through 25 is that an incorrect understanding of God leads to an incorrect understanding of man. And so, none of us are who we were created to be. Left to our own devices, we will dishonor our bodies, which were made for God either through self-indulgence or self-depredation. And that's what we see around us. We look around and we observe not only within our own Christian circles, but we also see the tentacles of the society at large reaching in, trying to provide a definition 
that is a prevalent definition outside the church to creep within the church so that we define ourselves according to the same standards that the world uses to define themselves. And so we either indulge ourselves or we degrade and deprive ourselves. Now, before we jump the gun, I do not think an accurate interpretation of verses 24 through 25 limits these verses simply to referring to human sexuality. It includes this aspect of our humanity because after all, that is part of who we're created to be, sexual beings. But it pertains to so much more. How we see God determines where we derive value and meaning, determines how we spend our time, what books we read. We dishonor our bodies when we live in a manner that is inconsistent with God's created purposes. We dishonor our bodies when we fail to acknowledge that we were made for God, that this earth is not ours, it is God's, and everything in creation is made for him to bring him glory and honor. And so when we do not acknowledge that, then we will live in a manner that is inconsistent with God's purposes. I don't know if you've ever heard the distinction between magnetic north and true north. But magnetic north is the direction, the northern direction of a compass. If you were to look at a compass, a compass is made of magnets, and so uh, the compass will point to the magnetic north. Uh, Primarily because uh, the, the Uh, the magnet within a compass is attracted to the magnetic pool at the northern axis of our hemisphere. But because the earth rotates and because it does so at an angle, ultimately the magnetic north is not the same as true north. True north is determined not by the magnetic pole of the earth, but rather by um, the relationship of the earth with Polaris or the northern star. So it's possible to be pointing true north and have our compass slightly off because it's attracted to magnetic north. Now, I give this as an analogy because in a similar way, when our hearts are not directed to God, they are drawn away from the truth and gravitate towards an incorrect view of life and an incorrect understanding of creation. When we exchange the glory of the creator for the glory of anything else, then we exchange the truth for a lie. And ultimately, this is the second casualty of idolatry. So the greatest lie of this generation is that our value is socially determined. If you doubt this, think of how excited you get whenever you see that a post you made on Facebook has several likes. Some people even are addicted. The endorphins in their brain provide satisfaction when they see that something they've said or something they've posted is liked or commented on by several people. And so this lie is pervasive within our world at large, within our generation, that our value is socially determined. Your value as a human being comes first and foremost from the fact that you were made in the image of God. And secondly, from the truth that God cherished his image in you so much that he wants to see it remade into the image of Christ. And so to do this, he sent his only son, the perfect image of the father, to die and rise again from the dark grip of death 
so that we can be resurrected to new hope and the internal compass of our hearts readjusted towards God the Creator. My third point, idolatry makes the unnatural natural. So far we have seen that the origins of idolatry are devotion that is exchanged, glory that is exchanged. Instead of directing our devotion to God and giving Him the glory, we seek glory from creation, whether that's ourselves or some other aspect of the created world. Then the second casualty of idolatry is truth that we do not understand who we are because we do not understand who God is. And the third casualty of idolatry is an exchange of the natural for the unnatural. Now, how do we define natural? How do we define according to nature? We all know that we live in a fallen world and there's no aspect of the universe that is not subject to the fall. When man sinned in Genesis chapter three, every aspect of the universe was affected by that decision. The laws of thermodynamics, the laws of decay, the laws of entropy exist because of the fall. But idolatry makes the unnatural natural. Natural pertains to the way that God intended things to be. God's created order, his divine design, if you will. But things that are unnatural are contrary to God's divine design. So idolatry makes the unnatural natural. It's a third casualty of an idolatrous heart. In verse 24, we saw that God allowed those with an inaccurate understanding of him to be controlled by the lusts of their own hearts. Lusts that were contrary to their own good and God's intention in creation. Then in verse 26, we see that God allows mankind to be driven by dishonorable passion. We see this in verses 26 through 27, where it says, for this reason, what reason? That they exchanged God's glory for the glory of creation, that they exchanged the truth for a lie. And for this reason, therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart to dishonor their bodies. And then in verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then he goes on to explain what these passions are. We see that God allows mankind to be driven by these dishonorable passions in a similar vein as he allows mankind to dishonor their body against the order of creation, against the order of nature. Now, obviously, verses 26 through 27 are addressing homosexuality. Makes clear that the issue is not sexual sin. And I think if we miss that, that we miss the gist, we miss the punch of this entire passage. Our tendency is to hone in on verse 26 and 27 and to see this as the climactic argument of this passage. And indeed, it is not. It is part of the argument, part of the description of mankind separate from God, living outside of God's created purposes, living in a manner that is unnatural and, and redefining what is unnatural as natural. So yes, verses 26 through 27 do address homosexuality. But the heart of the issue is not sexual sin, but rather a dishonorable passion that is against nature. In other words, a dishonorable passion that is contrary to God's created order. 
So without belaboring the point, let me simply say that homosexuality is sin. But it is not the chief sin. The chief sin is failing to honor God as God. Which leads to an inaccurate understanding of human identity and a redefining of what is natural and unnatural. No one will be in hell because they are a homosexual. They will be in hell, anyone who goes to hell, will be in hell because they have rejected the glory of God in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Allow me simply to say this before I move on, that primarily our culture has become so politically laden and it's trained the church to be issue-driven more than truth-driven. But in the pericope of this passage, in the context of this text, sexual sin is one among an array of sin which are made manifest in the hearts of those who reject God. So let's avoid or flee from the temptation to isolate verses 26 and 27 from the verses that come before or the verses that come after. Now, one point I want to make before we go into verse 4 is that we should not be surprised, given the downward progression of this passage, we should not be surprised that when mankind exchanges the glory of the Creator for creation and exchanges the truth for a lie and does not fully understand who God is and worship Him as God and therefore does not understand who we are as made in God's image, we should not be surprised that what is natural, what is God's ordained order of creation, is redefined as unnatural and the unnatural redefined as natural. It is a characteristic of our fallen world as it pertains to sexuality or as it pertains to all of life. This leads me to my fourth and final point, which is that idolatry leads to an exchange of conscience. Now, this exchange is one that is not as explicitly stated as the previous three, but it is implied. <clears throat> and I would argue, much to the perhaps disappointment of some, that the climax of this particular passage that we read, verses 22 through 32, is not verses 26 through 27, but rather verses 28 through 31. Because if this is a downward progression, and it appears to be the result of man exchanging the glory of God for the glory of, of, of himself or of some other created aspect of creation, if the downward progression of idolatry is that we reject God and that we exchange the truth for a lie and that we redefine what is natural as unnatural, then ultimately God, in his mercy, if he does not intervene into our lives and, and, and apply the redemptive work of Christ so that we have our true north redetermined or readjusted, so that our hearts which are dead in sin are resurrected, then we will all fall prey to what is described here in verse 28, which is the fourth and final casualty of idolatry, the exchange of the conscience. Have you ever stopped to wonder the means through which God is revealing his truth in this world? Yes, as we mentioned earlier, his divine Godhead is revealed in creation, of which we're all a part. But his plan of redemption 
By the way, we, we have a, a term for that. That's general revelation. That no man, no woman, no child is without excuse. That the heavens declare the glory of God. The earth proclaims his handiwork. We see God everywhere. But then there's special revelation, which is his redemptive purpose, his redemptive plan, and it's revealed to us in Scripture in his word. And his word is proclaimed, and his word is interpreted, and his word is understood in the context of community. So in other words, God through Christ is reshaping our hearts and restoring our conscience so that his intention for his, his creation can be realized. So the final step of this spiritual degradation, if you will, is not a communal awakening, but rather a soothing of a calloused heart. We see this in verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. The King James Version says a reprobate mind, a mind that thinks contrary to reason or a mind that thinks contrary to the way things are. Again, I would argue this is the highlight, this is the climax of this passage, the argument that Paul is making. He provides a list of sins that are attributed to a debased mind. And I want you to look at this list. Covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. These are the characteristics of a debased mind. And so the next step in this downward progression is that though they, though these people, though mankind know God's righteous decree, that those who practice this list of sins deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to all those who practice them. In other words, idolatry leads to an exchange of conscience, a self-deceptive notion that my sins are not as bad as yours, a self-deceptive notion that we are all okay. Now, I think it would be easy for us to point to our society at large and to say, yes, there is a sense of self-deception where the unnatural has been redefined as natural and where sins are portrayed as simply shortcomings or character flaws inconsequential to an individual's life. However, I want to bring this home to us as the church, as believers, as followers of Christ, because after all, the book of Romans was written to the church in Rome. And let me just make this point of application, and I do so in love, and I do so with all sincerity. Every preacher, every individual, every Christian who pounds their proverbial pulpit in a righteous zeal to point out the horrors of homosexuality or the LGBTQ plus community, and scripturally they are justified to do so, but how many rebuke their own congregants for being haughty or boastful or deceitful? How many speak openly against slander and heartlessness? You see, until the church becomes as vocal about the atrocities committed daily 
by those who profess faith in Christ as we are about those who are engaged in sexual sins. We will lose the ability to speak in a meaningful way to our generation. The final warning, both to an unbelieving world as well as a congregation professing faith in Christ, here in this text, is to guard our hearts or else we will vindicate ourselves for sins that we find acceptable and chastise those we consider intolerable, preventing others from repenting of their deeds and of the fruit of a debased mind. Now, let me say this as I close. Because we went pretty deep. We covered some pretty heavy stuff. We saw, in essence, four great exchanges that Paul mentions in this passage. The exchange of glory, where we are devoted to creation instead of creator. We're devoted to ourselves and our own ability to control our future instead of God and his sovereign rule. The exchange of truth about who we are, the exchange of nature for that which is unnatural, and the exchange of conscience. But let me just say that this passage begins with hope, and this is where I would like to end this morning. If you look at chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, Paul begins this passage by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So our hope this morning is not in a sinless life. It's not in our ability to clean ourselves up to the point that we must or might be acceptable before God. Our hope is in the good news of God, which is that he created us for himself and loved us so that he sent his only begotten son to die in our place so that we might be reconciled to him. And he gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can walk in newness of life. If you have never surrendered your heart and life to Christ, wherever you are as you watch this or as you listen to this, let me encourage you to stop and to cry out to him. He will answer you. He will hear your prayer. And that will put everything right again. That will be the beginning of Christ's redemptive, restorative work in your life. You'll be returning to that corner that I mentioned earlier and having your life oriented around a perfect square so that you give to God the glory that is due him and you understand yourself in relation to who he is and you see the truth about who you are, how God created the natural world and how God intends things to be. He will set your heart's compass to true north and exchange error for truth. He'll conform or he'll transform your convictions and desires and conform you to the power of his word. I cannot assure you that you'll never sin, but what I can promise is that when you do sin, you will have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And for those of you who have put your faith in Christ, let me simply encourage you through Paul's word to look to the very message of the gospel that Paul proclaims. The just shall live by faith, not by our good works, not by our exemplary conduct or character. We would hope that the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit produces those in our lives, but ultimately the just shall live by faith. 
And it is in that hope and in that confidence that we not only walk this daily life, but also that we seek to engage the world around us. Those who commit sins that we consider to be far worse than ours, but in the economy of heaven are just as, as heinous. Those who reject God and become the natural fulfillment of that rejection. We will seek them in love knowing that but for the grace of God, we too would be heading in a direction contrary to what God has revealed. And then finally, as we look at our responsibility as creation, we will always be creation. God and God alone is the creator. And when we are glorified in eternity, we never cease to be creation. We are simply glorified creation. But let us be aware and mindful of our responsibility to the rest of the created world, not only our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, not only to those who are perishing without the gospel, but also to every aspect of the world that we live in, the natural world, the environment, how we care for God's good creation, for it's not ours and it's not here for our glory, it's here for his, just as are we. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the timeless truth of the gospel. And in these moments when your word is convicting and your word speaks to us, we see the loving hand of the Holy Spirit seeking to shape us into the people that you've called us to be. And so, Father, I pray that even now, that if there are any under the sound of my voice who have not trusted you as Lord and Savior, that they would do so wherever they are. And for those of us who have, may we continue to grow in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and in the knowledge of God the Father. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.